0: Session number three, we've come to the second main section of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 to 55, sometimes called 2nd Isaiah, which arguably contains some of the most uh, kind of theologically rich passages in the Old Testament. Really significant for Old Testament theology, really wonderful literature as well. Really kind of influential in culture. If you're familiar with the handles Messiah, if you read through 2nd Isaiah, you'll hear loads and loads of the key um key uh, kind of lyrics the um, libretto that comes from Hanel's Messiah are coming from these um, passages and so last time we looked at Isaiah 1 to 39 when we were in the time of Isaiah we're in the 8th century BC and that time remember when Judah is facing this constant threat of invasion by the Assyrians And the whole of Isaiah 1 to 39 we saw is this call to trust in Yahweh alone, trusting God alone to rescue them. They're not to look to other nations. They're not to look to their own strength or anything like that. It's only by trusting in Yahweh, their God, that they're going to be delivered. But also we found that in chapter 39, the whole of that section kind of ends on a cliffhanger. Because we've had all this promising of trusting in God, which eventually Hezekiah does. We've had these grand promises of this eternal, international, perfect kingdom that God is going to establish with a new king who's going to reign in righteousness forever. But at the end of chapter 39, we get Isaiah prophesying that a little bit later down the timeline, all the riches of Judah, even the sons of the king, are going to be carted off into exile by the Babylonians. It seems that all these huge promises that God has given, all the things he's done kind of come crashing down. And we're left with these questions. Well, what's going on? Is God not able to save his people or maybe God's just not willing to save his people? And it's because Isaiah knows that when people read what he's uh, kind of brought from God, and what he's written down, they might ask those questions. That's the reason that he has to continue. That's the reason that from chapter 40, he actually skips about 160 years of history Looks right down the timeline and starts talking about the end of that period of exile after the Babylonians have kind of carted them down. He can't stand the thought that God's honor might be uh, kind of torn down, that accusations might be brought against God because of what he's prophesied. And so he has to bring the word of God about this later situation. And the message of Isaiah 40 to 55 is that God is more than able to save his people, and he's more than willing to save his people despite the fact that actually they continue to fail, they continue to rebel against him. And the message of that is exactly what he is going to do. And that's what we'll see through each of these, or the whole of this section as we explore it tonight. First of all, let's talk about a bit of historical background, because we need to get our our heads round a little bit what happens between that end of chapter 39 and the start of chapter 40. And if you're more of a visual person, I'm putting a bit of a timeline on the second page tonight. So you might find it useful to be looking at the timeline rather than the words as we go through, if that kind of helps you uh, visualise it and process it more. So those last chapters, Isaiah 36 to 39, we were uh, in the reign of King Hezekiah. And if you remember, we talked about the fact that in about 701 BC, all the cities around Jerusalem, all the towns were invaded by the Assyrians, were kind of taken over by them. But in the last moment, really, Hezekiah kind of hears that call to trust in Yahweh alone. He cries out to God and God spares the city of Jerusalem. And so the city of Jerusalem, where the temple is, where God's worked with his people, kind of remains as this last, uh, last outpost of God's kingdom on earth, the last place of his people in his place under his rule and blessing. And chapter 40 isn't talking into another 160 years later, so we've got to talk a bit about what happens in between about 700 BC and about 640 BC. And amazingly, Jerusalem retained its freedom, this one city retained its freedom from this time, and there were a series of kings, most of whom were pretty bad, and I think one of whom did quite well. After King Hezekiah, we get King Manasseh, and he was frankly a really, really bad king. He didn't listen to any of the stuff that Isaiah, the other prophets have been saying. He led the people into idolatry, into the practices of the other nations. And if you read the account in 2 Kings 21, God declares that because of the sin of Manasseh and what he led the people into, he's going to give Jerusalem over into the hands of the enemies of Judah. And it's probably actually during the reign of Manasseh that Isaiah dies. So he stops prophesying, um, it seems, kind of in Jerusalem in the time of Hezekiah. Probably Isaiah 40 to 55, actually to 56, is written during the reign of Manasseh. And if you imagine, you know, if there's a king who's involved in idolatry of all sorts, he's not going to like the guy who's telling them to worship Yahweh alone and to trusting him alone. And there's a story which isn't in the Bible, but it's from a historical narrative which may be true, which says that under the reign of Manasseh, Isaiah was killed. I don't remember how. I think he was sawning too. I think that's what the story says, which may be true. Probably he was persecuted and martyred during the reign of Manasseh. After Manasseh, we get a very short reign of a guy called Amon, equally bad, and people come along. His servants actually come along. They murder him and they put Josiah on the throne. And Josiah is a rare glimmer of light in the kind of narratives of the king of kings of Judah in this time. He, two kings tells us, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the way of David, his father. He repaired the temple, which had been kind of allowed to go into disrepair, I guess, as they worshipped other gods. And in the temple, they found what two kings calls the book of the law, which was probably Deuteronomy, which basically they would forgotten about. They lost it. They weren't living it out. They find Deuteronomy and Josiah is the one who reads this book, who weeps and mourns because they've not been living out what Deuteronomy says. And he then calls the people to put it into action. So that's why he restores the temple. He reforms uh, things in Judah and Israel, tearing down high places where they were worshipping uh, idols he restored the celebration of the Passover which Deuteronomy told the Israelites to do. It's kind of a really good point a glimmer of light but even though Josiah, uh, yeah, Josiah did well God actually says there in two kings he's still going to allow these nations to come and destroy just destroy Jerusalem because of the kind of severity of the sin that Manasseh and the other kings had, um, had performed. So we're still kind of waiting in this limbo thinking what's going to happen. After Josiah... In the wider scene, on the world stage, something really important happens. All through the story we've looked at so far, the Assyrians, who are the guys from the northeast, they're the kind of top dogs. They're the guys of this big empire who are coming in, threatening everyone. But at this time, they get pushed out by the Babylonians, who basically come from the southeast. Um, are they coming? and they then begin to build up this empire. So the threats are no longer coming from the Assyrians. The threats are now coming from the Babylonians. After Josiah, sadly came more bad kings who did evil, as two kings puts it, in the sight of God. Joahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and in the time of Jehoiachin, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, attacks Jerusalem. And Jehoiachin caved himself over to Babylonians. He kind of basically completely sold out to them, completely gave in. And as a result, the first group of exiles were taken off to Babylon. So some of the kind of top levels of society, the rich people, the landowners, the officials are carted off to a foreign land. And the Babylonians stick a guy called Zedekiah on the throne, who basically now is a puppet king. He's not got any freedom. He's totally in the hands of the Babylonians. He's just doing their work for him. And yet even he actually then later rebels against them. He sees a chance that he might be able to get some of his freedom back. He rebels against the Babylonians. But the Babylonians respond very forcefully, very strictly. They come in, they completely destroy the city, Jerusalem. They burn down the temple where the people worship, where God lives with them. They take the treasures away. They destroy the walls, the houses. And most of the population get carted right off past the desert round to Babylon. Two Kings tells us that only the poorest of society were left there. And so it seemed like, or in fact it was, that all of this stuff that had been built up in Jerusalem, all these things that seemed to be the fulfilment of the promises God had made centuries before to David and then centuries before that to Abraham, the promises that there'd be his people and his place under his rule and blessing, all of it has been utterly destroyed. The story's kind of gone up and up and up and now come utterly crashing down. Everything was lost and there was no hope. Because at this point in history, no nation had ever been taken off into exile and then being able to come back to their own land and to re-establish themselves as a nation. That had never happened. It was utterly impossible in the eyes of everyone around them that Israel might come back from Babylon and re-establish themselves in their own land. But the supremacy of the Babylonians only lasted a very short time. And so um, that happens in 586. That's the fall of Jerusalem. But then as early as 539, the Persians are the guys who get the top dog position. They push out the Babylonians. And the Persians have a very different approach. This guy Cyrus, who is a Persian emperor, he says, well, the other kind of emperors, they said, let's um, use brute force basically to force people into submission. We'll destroy everything. We'll take away the important people. We'll make sure they can't rebel by squashing everything down to make sure there's no power there to allow them to rebel. Cyrus said, well, actually, maybe it would work better if people liked us. If people liked us and we were good overlords to them, they might not rebel against us. And so he kind of followed this completely different policy. Rather than casting people off, rather than destroying everything, he said, guys, you can go home. And he said, actually, I'm going to give you money and treasures to be able to rebuild your city, to be able to rebuild your temple. He says, I want you to go and worship your God. Because he's thinking, if I get them on my side, they're going to be good, loyal subjects. And so that's what he allows them to do. And that's what some of the people of Judah go and do. And so when you read Ezra and Nehemiah in uh, kind of the end of the Old Testament, that's the stories of the return to build the temple and then the return to build the walls. The utterly impossible has happened. For the first time ever in history, an exiled nation has gone back has been able to re-establish itself, just as, as we're about to see, Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah 40 to 55. And as an interesting and kind of encouraging little historical um, tidbit, if you go to the British Museum, you can see something called the Cyrus Cylinder, which is kind of a, I don't know, it's made of a piece of rock about yay big, which is written in cuneiform, the language they would have, um, or the script they would have written in, which talks about Cyrus allowing all sorts of different peoples to return to their homes. And actually, if you were to go to the uh, head of the UN in the States where wherever it is, they have that there. It's kind of seen as this, it's sometimes talked about as the first kind of treaties of human rights. It was so unheard of in the ancient world. But that's a great example where this artefact we have supports the facts of what the Bible says. It's not absurd to think that a ruler would do this because actually we know he did it for lots of peoples. We've got that piece of evidence right there. And so Isaiah 40 to 55 give us the insight into God's involvement in that journey to return and restoration. Isaiah is kind of speaking into the time, probably the time just before Cyrus comes to power, just before he allows them to return home. It's quite hard to give a specific date because he's talking fairly generally compared to the early chapters. But certainly there's a sense of anticipation. We're just about to kind of cross that threshold into that new moment into that new time and so as we kind of begin to uh, open up Isaiah 40 to 45 we start with Isaiah 40 which kind of forms for us an overture it introduces us to some of the key themes that are going to come out during the, um, the remaining chapters it's kind of an opening uh, an opening piece changing the tone completely to what we've had up to 39 and introducing us to this new section the new things that are going to happen And it starts with those really familiar words, very famous words, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It comes cutting through all the chaos, all the destruction, all the grief, actually, of that Babylonian exile that he's just prophesied. And God comes and speaks his comfort. He's declaring that the situation is going to completely and utterly change. And that really kind of sets the tone, it sets the mood for the whole of this section. The overriding message of chapters 1 to 39 was one of judgment. Things are going to go wrong. Israel are failing to live the way that God wants them to live. And therefore God is going to have to judge them. But then the overriding message of 40 to 55 is actually peace is coming. God is going to deal with that sin issue. And so he can declare comfort to them. And underline those words where he says my people uh, says your God. There's this kind of guarantee that God is going to be faithful to his promises. Because central to the promises that Israel had inherited, given first to Abraham, then through to Moses, through to David, were the idea that Israel would be God's people and God, Yahweh, would be their God. And now God is declaring, he's calling them my people again. He's calling himself your God. He's saying that he is going to be their God. And if we think back to chapter 6 of Isaiah, Isaiah's call there actually, God sends Isaiah to speak to this people. He doesn't say my people. He kind of almost is disowning them. Go and speak to this people. Go and speak to those guys over there. But now chapter 40, he's saying, comfort, comfort to my people, says your God. It's no longer this and them over there. It's God saying, I am taking them back into my arms, restoring back to that, uh, that kind of promise. And then this comfort can be spoken Because the problem of sin, which underlied absolutely everything else, underlied all the judgment coming to Judah and to Israel, has been dealt with. He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her time of service is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Nothing's actually said about how this is possible. And it will be later in these chapters that Isaiah explains to us how will it be that God can forgive the sins of Israel and of Judah. But he's declaring that the problem is dealt with. All their offences against God have been forgiven. Israel has received in full all the punishment that she is going to receive. And this forgiveness of sins, the provision of atonement will be one of the key themes we'll see as we progress through these chapters. And then the radical change of situation includes not just comfort coming to the people, not just forgiveness of sins and atonement, but it actually includes God returning to be with his people. When the temple was destroyed, the place where God dwelt with his people was knocked down. He was kind of removed from living among them. But the promise here is that God is coming back to be with his people. And we can see that as the cause of dealing with sin. We can see it as God comes back and that's how sin is dealt with. But it's also the result the fact that sin is dealt with means that god can return he can come he can be with the people and isaiah in these words he calls on the people to prepare the way for god he says in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god he's saying god's coming back and now it's kind of our moment our time to make the way and of course god can't be stopped by physical things he talks about you know, the the, uh, the high mountains the low valleys he's not talking about geography so this seems to be about preparing hearts this is a call to repentance it kind of echoes the message of John the Baptist and probably actually John the Baptist as we know from the gospels quoting this chapter there he's linking into this theme of preparing the way for God to come back to his people to dwell with them again and then the result of God's returning to be with his people is going to be that his glory and God's glory is kind of the uh, expression of all that he is in all of his perfections is going to be known and recognised by all people. And once again, that's one of the themes we're going to see in these chapters, that everything that God does in saving Israel is to make sure that all people know that Yahweh alone is God. And then we get to kind of the end of this overture and verses six oh no, sorry the middle, verses six to eight, they actually seem to be another calling of Isaiah. If you think back to Isaiah 6, we saw Isaiah had this great vision of God as the holy, holy, holy one, then being commissioned to go to these people who he used to keep talking to, but weren't going to be able to understand him, weren't going to be able to hear and respond to what he's saying. And it seems that this is another kind of call not to replace that one. Really, it's kind of adding a new layer to what Isaiah is called by God to do. And the core content of the message that God gives Isaiah here. Is to look at the contrast between um, humans and God's word. He says that humans are just kind of like grass; we wither and fade. The thing which is uh, universal about the human condition is that we don't last. We wither, we fade, we die. The transience of life is that thing that unites humanity. But by contrast, he says God's word stands forever. And what that means in Isaiah's context is that rulers like Sennacherib and Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, all of them are just going to wither and fade. But God's promises to his people will never fade. They'll never wither. They endure forever and ever. And as Isaiah then takes us into chapters 41 to 55, he's taking up this commission. And he shows us the contrast between the God who is eternal and whose word lasts forever forever and all other things. And he's showing us that God's promises, God's word stands forever, it endures forever. And all of this stuff, all of this news is kind of so wonderful, it's so exciting that the end of this overture becomes this kind of uh, outburst of praise where um, Isaiah tells Jerusalem to proclaim to the cities of Judah, those cities around it, behold your God. And again, if you think back to last week, what happened in Isaiah 6 was that Isaiah beheld God. He had this wonderful encounter with this wonderful vision of God and it was a transformative encounter. And we said that what Isaiah went through in recognising who God was, in being then cleansed by God to do his work, is exactly what Israel needed to go through. They needed to behold their God and have a transformative experience of that. Well, here the start of the new section, Jerusalem is declaring to all the peoples and all the places around it, behold your God. God is coming. God is going to do that thing which needed to happen. And he says that God is coming with might and his arm rules for him. He's talking about the power of God, which yet again is going to be a key theme. The arm of God, meaning his strength, his power, his authority, actually is one of the regular phrases you'll find throughout these chapter he's declaring that God is all-powerful and therefore God is able to come and to do all of this and the overture finishes with these wonderful wonderful promises of God's kind of tender care of his people when he's dealt with this issue when he's comforted when he's drawn himself he's come back to them he says that God will tend his flock like a shepherd he will gather the lambs in his arms he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young and it's that kind of wonderful, gentle message of God's drawing or near, God's care, which we're going to find kind of permeates these chapters. Mm. Any questions Got any of that on the kind of overture, these themes of Isaiah, 2nd Isaiah, on the historical background stuff?
1: Is there any evidence that the people later on took note of this 2nd?
0: And it from hope. Although the that happened, that's a really really good question Did they take it on board? yeah that's a really good question there are parts of my Isaiah that are quoted in other prophets, yeah. I can't think quickly enough off the top of my head to think what the dates of those prophets are and whether they are taking <laughs> from this into that period um, so I guess my, my rather poor answer is there may be but I can't think of it off the top of my head because um, it's an interesting question you know, so if Isaiah wrote this down and maybe he had a, a group of disciples who uh, kind of treasured this teaching but it is kind of this question Well, where was this teaching who knew of this teaching it's just things we can never know really how much could this stuff circulate at the time it may have been only a very small group who, who knew of this who kind of were able to read this at the time we just don't really know I'll look into that actually so it's a very very good interesting kind of historical question to think about Sorry. No the other thing, or just
1: to parallel to that, is um, is there any what historical evidence do we have of hundred and sixty years
0: between the destruction itself. I know there's a
1: lot elsewhere, but in
0: the Bible itself You mean sorry, what historical evidence do we have to what happens in history in that time? Yeah. We have various different things, we have the biblical material we would have, on the kind of world scale, we'd have the history of Herodotus, yes, one of the most significant yes, yes. world histories. We'd have, yeah, Josephus, a Jewish, a Jewish antiquities, yes. his kind of accounts of that. We should be using um, biblical material and other sources probably. There would then be a load of archaeological stuff. Archaeology has never quite interested in me, uh, so I was avoided that at uni. Um, but there would be, there is archaeological stuff about the destruction of Jerusalem um, and the rebuilding, and certainly we've got you know, Assyrian annals, also their own accounts of their own times, Babylonian tablets, which tell us about their times. They're, this is a very well-documented period of world history. It's kind of a, it is the time in history when people start to make their own records. And so it's a time when history becomes a little bit easier, because you're not just digging things up to try and see what happened or finding the occasional painting, but you're beginning to find solid um, kind of written records. Mm. So there'd be quite a lot there. <coughs> <coughs> the last historical in the old yeah, well they cover the last historical period. Chronicles is written at a similar time to Ezra and Nehemiah. I don't know. So one and two kings are written about the time of the exile to explain what's happened in the exile. Chronicles is written somewhat later and it's telling the same story but applying it to the renewed Israel, the rebuilt Jerusalem and the new community there. I don't know what the dates are as to whether Chronicles comes before or after Ezra and Nehemiah, but certainly somewhere around there. So apart from maybe some of the Psalms, which would come from later as well, and any references in other prophets. Malachi is the last prophet in about 420 BC. Um, historical stuff in there would be a bit later but there's some of the latest yeah certainly excellent let's dive in with what basically is well yeah it's it's certainly one of the main key themes repeating themes in Isaiah is going to be our doorway into Isaiah 40 to 55 which is the servant and just to give you a pre-warning here we're going to try doing things a little bit differently tonight we're going to kind of combine the two things we normally do of upfront teaching and kind of group activities and we're going to try and merge them together and do a bit of a sort of workshop seminar style. So it's a bit like we're all going to be doing one big activity, group activity together, partly because it's good to mix up how we do it, but partly what I hope we're going to do tonight, and we'll, we'll basically give this as much time as it needs and then if we have time to we'll cover some of the material, is it's going to allow us to walk through and to learn together how do you wrestle with a tricky question in biblical interpretation. How do you kind of journey through? How do you ask the right questions and try and find a way through? And what we're going to do is we're going to try and find out basically who is the servant figure who Isaiah keeps talking about. And how does that then help us to understand everything that he's saying in these chapters? So this servant figure or the servant motif occurs a lot in these chapters, about 20 times in these chapters. Very rarely or never in the same way in the first part of Isaiah and rarely and slightly differently in the last part of Isaiah and scholars have identified that there are four particular sections which talk about this servant which often are called the servant songs and as I've just intimated the big interpretive question when we come to this whole theme the idea of the servant songs is the identity of the servant who is the servant who Isaiah keeps talking about Is the servant perhaps a reference to Israel? Is it metaphorical, a a way of talking about the whole of the people of God? Is it a reference to a prophet? Is it a reference to Isaiah himself? Is it a reference to a later prophet like Jeremiah? Or is it actually somebody else, a different individual figure who's not named, who may or may not be from this time period? Or actually, could it be that the terms used to refer to different people at different places in these chapters, Or could it be that even in one mention of the servant in Isaiah here, he could be thinking of two different people or two different groups of people? And so we're going to now look at each of these four servant songs in Isaiah. And by kind of picking them apart together, we're going to try and isolate who is Isaiah talking about? And kind of how does that help us to get to grips with the message of what um, he's saying? And you'll see for each one, we're going to ask some key questions. We're going to read the passage together and we're going to ask, how is the servant described? And we're going to think about what these things said about the servant might kind of hint about his identity. We're going to ask what the servant does or what's done to him. Sometimes he's doing a lot of stuff. Sometimes a lot of things are happening to him. And we're going to discuss that together. And then from that, we're going to try and kind of make a stab at least at saying, well, who is this servant who Isaiah is referring to? So the first of these servant songs comes in Isaiah forty-two, verses one to nine, which isn't the first mention of the servant in the chapters. You'll see, even though I've mentioned at, in the kind of middle of chapter forty-one, there's mention of this servant in verses eight to ten. But it's the first kind of major chunk about the servant, the first bit we often call these servant songs. So, if someone would like to volunteer to read out to us Isaiah forty-two. Uh, verses 1 to 9. And that's helpful, you. Thank you. I'll we'll get a bit more quiet. Anyone like to read it out for us? Thank you, Penny.
1: Here is my servant, whom I am uphold, my chosen one, through my delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout, or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed. Will not out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law the islands will be put, will put their hope. This is what the God, the Lord says: He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people. And light to those who walk on it. I the Lord have called you in righteousness. I will hold your hand, I will keep you, and will make you to be a covenant for the people, and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release those from dungeon, from the dungeon, those who sit in darkness. know him, please, yeah. I am the Lord, this is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, the new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you, Penny. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes, about three minutes now. Just jot down... From reading through that quickly, as many thoughts as you can in the relevant boxes. So pick out a few things about how the servant's described. Pick out anything he does, anything that's done to him, and you might like to start thinking who you think it is. But actually, focus probably in the first two boxes. Get some ideas down, and then we're going to discuss those together. Okay, don't we haven't got much down yet? But um, let's throw out a few things. How is this servant described? What kind of things did you find about him? Chosen. Yeah, that's a really significant way. It's definitely chosen. Where does that bit come? It gives life, breath, and to so everyone in the world. Yes, that's describing the Lord who's speaking. Who then speaks to the servant. So I think it's thus says God the Lord. So this is the one who's speaking, and the one who's speaking is the one who created the heavens, who spread out the earth, gives breath. Because Spirito is walking it and then he says to the servant, I am the Lord, I've called you in righteousness. So I don't think the servant is the creator, but the creator is speaking to the servant. Does that make sense? Oh, right.
2: I I was taking
0: the servant as far as being Christ. Jesus. It might well be, but nevertheless, here, here, well, it might not be, this is the interesting one. But here, this is the one who's speaking, describing himself, who's speaking to the servant. So the, the verse you're talking to... You're talking about. He's talking about the one speaking to the servant rather than the servant himself. That makes sense. What are you saying, Mr. Paul I was going to say, it's the bringer of justice. Bringer of justice. Yeah, definitely. So that's one of the things he does. Is that he brings justice to the nations. Faithful. faithful, great. To Won't be discouraged. Good. Yeah, yeah. He's going to succeed, basically. There's humility and compassion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, that's reasonable. What's the phrase used here? I've put my spirit upon him. That one's a really important thing that happens to him. He's upheld, by God. Yeah. upheld by God, yep, wonderful. We doesn't grow fat? hmm. discouraged? Yeah. Who opens the eyes of the blind and sets the captives free? Yeah. Breathes life. Mm hmm. What's said about the nations? Sorry? yeah great a covenant for people and he's a light for the nations i think is one of the set things in here so things are setting here i think we've got most of the things there now thinking about these descriptions thinking about the things that the servant does who what kind of figure or who do we think isaiah is talking about
3: somebody that serves the
0: lord excellent definitely Do we think, remember I so said there are different options. He might be talking about Israel, he might be talking about the prophet, he might be talking about an individual figure. Yeah, Dave? I was just thinking,
3: did Jesus cry or shout out in, or raise his voice in the streets? Because he did, didn't he? He cried out on the cross at the end he said, Lord, you've saved me. So does that rule out being Jesus'
0: or? I don't think we'd rule out in the sense of the simple fact that he wasn't in the street when he was crucified. I it sounds very picky, but that would be... The case, he's on a hill outside the city. Um, I mean, I, and some of this, this is uh, kind of poetic language to communicate a point. So when he says, he will not cry aloud, lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not, will not quench, the idea is that he's gentle, he's compassionate. Some of the things that have been said, it's more the point that's being communicated than the detail. So I mean, because it's that kind of poetic way of talking,
3: yeah, no, that's true. That could be a,
0: That's very good. Yeah, maybe it's a statement of his authority as well. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. Thank you. Do that's a really good. yeah. yeah doing stuff. I think mean, that's a really good way of putting it. Do we think this is symbolic of Israel? Do we think it's an individual? Do we think it's talking about a prophet? Give me. Any thoughts any reasons why you might think any of those? I think it's talking about people. A people group? Okay, tell me more. Because, because it talks about being <laughs> aligned to the nations, and the, the version of Kenny um, from, mm-hmm. in one of those scriptures, translated nations as Gentiles. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I kind of thought maybe it's talking about. Israel as a, you know, as a nation. Okay, really interesting, yeah. But then, you know, if you bring that into New Testament language, we are the body of Christ. Yep. So, you know, we are also that. Yes. I can see you guys are going to be too good and you're going to jump us to the answers too quickly. But you're spot on, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me encourage you, as I should have said at the beginning, with the way we're doing this, try and think as if you don't know the New Testament for the time being, okay? <laughs> we're trying to read, we're trying to think, what would the guys who first heard Isaiah say this or first read this say? Because remember, our aim is always to ask, what did the original author want to say to the original audience? And obviously, as those post-Jesus, we always then put that through the lens of Jesus. But actually, step one, because if you separate the steps, you stop yourself getting confused, you, uh, you do that kind of on its own terms first let me highlight to you two things we said one thing is we're told here this figure receives the spirit i've put my spirit upon him this is verse one and we're told that he brings forth justice to the nations this is a bit stretching your minds can you think of anything from the first section of Isaiah we've looked at any figure whom that is said of where the holy spirit is significant where justice bringing justice to nations is significant Isaiah himself, in part. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a very good um, point. So so some people would say this is Isaiah or this is a prophet. And this is kind of prophet-like stuff to have the spirit upon you to then do God's work, to speak to the nations. So that is one way we could uh, kind of read those things. We could say, is this talking about a prophetic figure? Any other type of figure? Think back to Isaiah. In fact, let me just read you some stuff. Things like Isaiah... uh, 11. There shall come forth from the shoot of uh, sorry, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Well, a king who is to come, one who's going to come from the stump of Jesse. That's one of the messianic passages in Isaiah 1 39, when Isaiah is saying there's all this mess here. But actually God is gonna send a king who will rule forever, who will rule in justice, who will bring justice to the nations, and will be anointed with the Spirit. And so some of the kind of key things said about the servant make us begin to think this sounds like a Messiah figure. It sounds like that king that Isaiah 1-39 has talked about. So maybe the servant is like the king in Isaiah 1-49. But one of the key things we know in the Bible is context, isn't it? We said that literary context, the things that happen before and after are really important. Turn with me to Isaiah 41, verse 8. Let me just read to you verses 8 through to verse 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Who's the servant here?
3: Israel.
0: Well, Israel, if we're thinking Isaiah's day, Israel. And so can you see how if we didn't know the New Testament, and we've never read this before, once we get to Isaiah 42, we already know the servant is Israel. And so we're naturally going to think that Isaiah here, God through Isaiah, is talking about Israel. And then just turn with me to Isaiah 42, verses 18 to 19. Where Isaiah says, Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? Who's the servant here? Israel. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's Israel. If you think back to Isaiah 6, the call of Isaiah, he's given this commission go and keep speaking. But the people won't understand. These people you're talking to, he says, basically are blind and deaf. This is talking about Israel. So now just to complicate matters even more. We know that the servant in Isaiah 42 is Israel. If we read it, read it in context. But what is he said here about the servant doesn't seem to match up at all with what is said in the same chapter about the servant and what he says earlier in Isaiah about the servant. So I think maybe the best we can say, if we didn't know anything else, we're just reading this, is what we seem to have here is a kind of idealised Israel. It needs to be Israel to make sense in the context. But it's not the Israel as they are. It's not what they're doing. It's not how they're living. Maybe it's this kind of idealised Israel. This is what Israel should be. This is the end goal. This is what God wants his people to be like. And to see if that's right, we need to kind of go on to the other passages. But can you see how what we've done is we've said, let's look at details in the text. We've said, well, let's think about the details and think, well, what does spirit hint about? What does justice to the nations? That suggests a messianic figure. But then we thought, but what about context? And actually the context it takes, that it can't really mean that because you would not think that if you didn't know anything else. You see how details and context. They're helping us to kind of pull our way through. Let's jump to the next one, which is in Isaiah 49. Verses 1 to 7. Have I got a volunteer to read these verses to us? Yeah, Thank you, Margaret.
2: Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb is to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I, have honored, I, for I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. It says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Israel and bring back to those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring, forth, bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to whom he was despised and abhorred by the nation. To the servant of rulers, kings will see you and rise up, princes will see and bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of
0: Israel who has chosen you. Excellent. Thank you, Margaret. So you see, again, we've got this name of the servant. He's being addressed. Lots of things in here particularly he does. So let's just take a few moments, jot some notes down, focus maybe particularly on that second box. What are the things that this servant actually does and that he achieves? Okay, let me give you a clue for this one to start with. If you were to read Isaiah 48, you'd find that the big theme of our Isaiah 48 is that Israel are failing. They're completely, utterly failing to be the people that God wants them to be. We I mean, kind of need to bear that in mind. That's what Isaiah just said before he starts talking about this servant. What kind of things are said about this servant? Particularly what kind of things does this servant do? God's Wonderful, yeah, yeah. Shows God's glory, shows God's splendour. Brilliant, yeah. Okay, so that's really interesting. Isn't it? He raises up, uh, or oh, how's my translation, but um, he brings Jacob back in, that idea of kind of returning from exile, that Israel might be gathered to him. A little bit later, yeah, raising up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. Who does that suggest that this might be? Or might not be? Jesus. Yes, remember, we're not yet thinking, we don't yet know about Jesus. <laughs> uh, but you're... <laughs> You're too well-trained, this is it. Amos, yeah. Well, basically it suggests it's not Israel, doesn't it? It would be very odd to say, Israel, you're going to bring Israel back. That kind of doesn't really make sense, does it? So instantly we've got something to suggest this might not be like the serving in chapter 42. Because it would be very odd to say, Israel, you're going to bring Israel back. So maybe this isn't talking to the same person that chapter 42, is. Spot on. And what kind of clues in here suggest this is a specific person? Are there things in the text? <laughs> He's been given something to say. Yep. Sorry, what was that? Yeah, yeah, there's lots of stuff about birth and the, um, the body of the mother coming from the womb and stuff. All of which could be metaphorical, but really sounds like the God is trying to tell us this is an individual who was born of a woman. This is a, a single person. And there's kind of a, a lot of stuff about that. And you can kind of think, why on earth put so much in? Maybe the point is i are meant to get, this is an individual, this is not the nation. Well, yeah. When I read it, it just
3: looked like uh, he was talking with, uh, about yourself,
2: as
0: I was in, about himself. That's how I read it. But, uh, you know. Which on one level works, yeah. And as I said, that is one of... One of the kind of readings of it. I'm just trying to look and think now, what would. Is there evidence that stands against that? Are there reasons not to think that? It says um, in this part, and
1: now he who formed me from the womb to be the servant to bring Jacob back to him. So specifically,
3: I say Jacob has the, uh, the the rest
0: of Israel back to him. So it has to be one person to bring all of these people back together. I think that's right. Yeah, I think that is key. That does suggest that it's an individual who is not. The whole. Um, I think you're right, Hugh. In a sense, there's probably not a lot in here to tell us at the moment that this isn't the prophet. And of course, he does sound very prophet-like. He's made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he's hid me. He's maybe a polished arrow in his quiver. He's hid me away. And even all the stuff about the womb. If you think about some of the calling stories of the prophets, think of the call of Jeremiah, especially chapter one of Jeremiah, when he talks about being called from his mother's womb and all this stuff being set apart. We're meant to hear certainly there is a prophetic. Um, character to so who, or a prophetic quality to so who this person is. Certainly, are there any phrases here that are repeated, um, which we heard in chapter forty-two? Yeah, light for the nations. Mm. light for the nations. Doing that like justice to the yeah, justice. yeah. So certainly that key phrase that came for the servant in chapter forty-two of being a light to the nations comes here and is implied, applies to this. Uh, Kind of individual. That, I think, is a really good point. What's even more so is that this is one of the very, very few of these, but it's an odd anomaly, anomaly where almost all English translations do something very odd. A much more literal translation of that is that you will be my salvation literally the Hebrew says to be my salvation unto the ends of the earth this person is being told that they are the salvation that God is bringing not as they bring it they somehow embody the salvation which has got to be significant it's a spotted well that's right that very phrase I'm not supposed to go to the New it's alright of yeah yeah To be a light, to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Yeah, 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 Yeah. really good point. Yeah, yeah. So you can see what Simeon was thinking. So we try and piece together the things here. What we've got is you might start by thinking it's Israel because we know the previous servant was Israel. But then actually this figure is being told they're going to bring Israel back, which makes us think it probably needs to be not Israel. It probably isn't individual. We've got all this emphasis on this person being born and coming from the womb and all sorts, all of which seem to suggest an individual rather than a corporate thing. We've got the fact that this person is actually called, that he is the salvation of God. Not just he brings the salvation of God, he is the salvation of God. But what we've also got is that he has some of that same commission, that same vocation, given to Israel in chapter 42, because he is the light of the nations. And even where there's not exactly the same words as we said in 42, a lot of what is being said here is saying that this individual is going to do what the servant in Isaiah 42 was meant to do. So, so far, okay, we're beginning to trace out the picture. We've got an idealised picture of what Israel are meant to be doing, but we also know they're not doing it, because we know the servant is, uh, is not hearing is deaf, different things that he said there. But now we're being introduced to an individual who seems to be doing what Israel were meant to be doing. That's quite important.
1: I, I think also that it says he, um, he actually polished, made him into a polished arrow, um, arrow, and he's been preparing. He's made his mouth like a sharpened sword. Mm. He's been preparing him for something later because he's had concealed in his quiver until the right time comes.
0: So he's been hidden. Mm. But he's been preparing him all the time. Really good, yeah, yeah. It doesn't sound like a nation, it sounds like a significant, that's very, very good, yeah, yeah, a significant individual, waiting for the right moment, it's preparation, ready to be revealed kind of thing. Excellent, yeah, I think that's a very pertinent point. And
3: then, so, is there another point at the end, when in verse 7, short will see see
0: bow down? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, which is unlikely to be referring to a nation. And also notice right at the very end there, just notice another link with chapter 42. One of the first things said in 42 is, you're my servant, my chosen one. Here, this servant is chosen. Another thing where even though it seems to be a different person, the same things are being applied to them. Notice also, we're about to move on, but notice also verse 7. There's also this hint that while he does all this amazing stuff, he's one deeply despised he's abhorred by the nation which suggests he's not the nation because the nation hate him he's the servant of rulers let's jump to the third servant song which chant comes in chapter 50 just afterwards um and his verses 4 to 11 just to set into context for you just before this um, Sorry. just before this he's been talking about the failings of israel yes again the failure of israel to do what they should do to live god's way um he talks about where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which i sent her away god's basically saying as good as divorced the people um behold for your iniquities you were sold for your transgressions your mother was sent away he's accusing israel again of all the things they've done wrong well, someone would someone like to read to us um verses 4 to 11 of isaiah 50
3: so tongue to know the word that sustains the weary wakens me morning by morning wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. the sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I have not been rebellious I have not drawn back I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the Sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moss will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his name. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down and torment.
0: Excellent, thank you. Again, let's take two, three minutes. Focus here, particularly, on how the servant is described this time, what is said in description of him and what might that be indicating to us Okay, what do we find here what is said uh, in description of the servant this time he
1: says the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught so he's able to teach he's not the tongue of those
3: that
0: Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And he's able to teach. Yeah, and bring the word of God. Yep. Yeah. He gives him mm. ear to hear. The Lord is saying to him. Yes. And why, in the context of Isaiah, and even what we've said today about this servant, why is the idea that he can hear is when ear to hear significant? What's being said about hearing? Uh, in what we've seen today I'm oh, sorry I have not yeah well if we go back to um, don't turn here to Isaiah 42 hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see who is blind but my servant as deaf as my messenger whom I send so earlier we were told the servant when it was Israel was deaf was not able to hear what God was saying, here is one who morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Here is one who, unlike Israel, is able to and is choosing to hear from God and to learn from him. Perfect, yeah, yeah. exactly. There's obedience, there's a lack of rebellion. Again, exactly the opposite of everything we're being told about Judah and Israel in this book, actually continually being told they've been rebelling against God, they're living in disobedience to God. This one hears God and then lives in um, obedience, lives in the way that he wants. Um, in the of opposition, mm. he neither retaliates nor belongs. Yeah, really, really good. Yeah, yeah. I just read this and thought, I bet, or rather I hope no one asked that. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourself with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. Um, I did read A this this week and I'm now trying to remember what I read about it. I think commentators say there are two ways it can be read. It can be read in that in your disobedience it's like you've lit a fire and that fire now is going to catch everything else a fire and it's going to kind of cause your destruction in a sense. So when he says walk by the light of your fire he's actually basically saying your disobedience is about to make this fire kind of take off and destroy you. Um yeah, yeah, that's exactly, yeah, actually, exactly the kind of, uh, yeah, kind of sense of it, I think. Equip yourself with burning torches. in the couple of verses beforehand, it was
2: saying that, let him who walks in the dark and has no light trust in it in the name of the Lord, yeah.
0: and the is God. Yeah. So those are the people who are going to trust God, whereas the people, like you say, who think they know it all. Yeah yeah well i'm going to trust fire i think that is what i think you're so spot on there they know they're saying you're in the darkness what you need to do is trust god well they're saying it's not going to strike a match and make my own light and actually it's basically saying you're going to get what you want from not trusting in god um so i think that's a very good observation i think that's it um anything else we noted about what he does what's said about him what we haven't said Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's his commitment, set his face like Flint kind of thing, commitment to do whatever God says, to live out whatever the call of God upon him is. Yes, yeah. curing God. Mm. Yeah, God, and there's just this idea, isn't there, of a really close, intimate relationship. Again, that morning, my morning thing, he awakens my ear. Um, there's a real sense of close, intimate relationship between this servant and between God. So what we can say, I guess, is it doesn't sound like Israel, because we've been told that Israel's ears are kind of stopped. Israel is deaf, but actually here ears are open. Israel is rebellious, but here is one who is not rebellious. He's clearly really closely... Oh, yeah, we missed this one. Verse 10, he's really closely linked to God. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Now, he's not quite saying that the Lord and the servant are the same person, although you could read it that way, but clearly fearing God and obeying his servant are incredibly, incredibly close together. There's something going on here, which means that this servant is very, very closely linked to God, which again doesn't sound like kind of disobedient Israel. It sounds like an individual again, doesn't it? There's there's lots of individual stuff here who has this really close, really personal relationship with God. And we're beginning to get ideas of um, him being kind of um, abused, but being then uh, vindicated Um, I give my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I've not been disgraced. We had a little hint in the last servant song about an individual that there'd be kind of abuse, but vindication. Here again, a little hint. There's abuse, but vindication follows. So it sounds like this figure who is kind of embodying what Israel should be. Is going to experience some sort of abuse, rejection, but also vindication. Let's now move to the final servant song. Sorry, can I just sorry yeah. When it says the sovereign Lord, that actually, for some reason, makes me think it's, it's described in Jesus. So, where, where just give me the reverse, sorry. Um, so verse, sorry. Four, four, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, so what's going on there? So, my translation says the Lord God. What's going on there? Sorry, let me double check what's going on there is that he's not using the name Yahweh, the Lord God what is this? Isaiah 54 which is now when you have Lord written in capital letters in your Bibles what is he saying Duru Adonai verse 4 Adonai, Yahweh. Okay, yeah. So um, what's the quickest way to explain this? So in the Bible, when your Bible says Lord in capital letters, that's um, saying that the text says Yahweh, which is God's personal name. And so instead of saying Yahweh, we say Lord or Adonai in Hebrew, which is a kind of mark of reverence from Jewish tradition. That then leaves the translators with a problem when the text actually says Adonai, because you can't have Adonai, Adonai, if it's two different words and so translations will say something like Sovereign Lord, you've got the ESV you'll have God in capital letters that is then the personal name of God Yahweh, but it's, he's saying Adonai Yahweh, the Lord God sorry, so what's going on there? but you are right of course, if we were to open our minds to the New Testament, if you think of Jesus saying in the temple the spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me Yeah, that's different.
2: Um, so it's the translation but like when I think about this so when I think Mm-hmm. I
0: think it's Jesus. Um, because of the use of the word Lord? or yes. Yeah. But can we think of it like that? Can, should we just see it in the light of the Old Testament? You definitely can, because you're a Christian, you can think of it like that. Right. Whether I would for this particular verse, I don't know. I think this is God the Father talking. Or God in all three persons of the Trinity, yeah. speaking. But what you're spot on is that the, the name Lord for Jesus in the New Testament is hugely significant. Because in the Old Testament, we get lots of these occurrence of Yahweh, the name of God, which then, when the Old Testament is translated into Greek, before the time of Jesus, is translated as Lord. So that all the Jews of the time know the name of God as Lord, as kurios. Jesus comes along and Jesus claims to be kurios. And time and time again, the New Testament calls Jesus kurios. And what, therefore, the Greek Jews of the time are meant to realise is this guy is being given the name, the personal name of God from the Old Testament. This guy is God. So you're spot on. That Lord actually is not just the kind of, you know, sir, master kind of title. It's saying that's God. That is God in the flesh with Jesus. So a good, a good kind of echo to hear. You're definitely hearing the right kind of things there. Let's move to the last of the servant songs, which is the most famous by far, often called the song of um, the suffering servant, the longest as well. Let me read this out to you. As I read it out, think particularly about the things that this servant does. Think particularly about the results of what the servant does. This is chapter 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which was not being told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who is believed what he has heard from us and to whom is the arm of the Lord being revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, What are the things that this servant does and what are the things that he achieves by what he does? It's picking up on some of the hints we've had already. Isn't it? This idea of being despised, been rejected, but then also ideas of vindication. What do we think he's talking about in verse 15 when he says he shall sprinkle many nations? What are we meant to be thinking of when we're thinking of sprinkling nations? Many Christians will
1: come, many people will come
0: to know in, in all the nations of the world. Yep, yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's an international thing. Where does the sprinkling ring bells from an Old Testament kind of context? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You sprinkle blood, you sprinkle water. It's about cleansing and all sorts of different. Uh, situations of the old testament cleansing happened through um, through spring- sprinkling. Oh, what else? Okay. Shout out to me some of the things that happen here. In yeah. the Bible, it mm. says that, that word the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. In sorry, in the sprinkling. Yeah, um, 15, which is actually... yeah you're right, yeah some bones I think it might um, mean yeah you're right and I think commentators are fairly split between it sprinkling would fit very well there's a lot of language here which harks back to priestly cultic stuff to atonement to sacrifice and all sorts um sort of makes sense which in one way actually is an argument against it startle would fit less well and so therefore you ask why would someone change the text to say something that makes less sense it might be the original reading um so you right, yeah it could be either without looking into it um It's hard to say, but probably the weight lies. You're right, the weight probably lies on Sprinkle, though, because in mine, at least, that's where it's got in the main text. What other things happened to this figure and what does he achieve? It's not a trick question. You can read some of them out. (laughs) Yeah. Ideas of substitution, isn't it? They were our things, but they're taken by this figure, taken by this servant. What's his response when he is oppressed and smitten and, uh, what's well, it, by God, um, despised, rejected? Keeps quiet. Keeps quiet, absolutely. There's a wonderful contrast, isn't there? We like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own away. But he like a lamb is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that's before its shearers is, is silent. It's, there's likeness. We're all sheep. But actually, whereas we go astray, we go the wrong way. Actually, this one silently, obediently goes through with what is happening. There's something
1: else happening here, isn't there, as well? Because it says, it back, if we go back to the sprinkling, it says, mm. that which they, which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. So there's another element here. Yes, yes. Element,
0: yes, supernatural element. And yet again, hearing and seeing. Israel have been failing to hear, Israel have been ha- failing to see, they're deaf, they're blind, but actually that's what they previously didn't see, now they're gonna see. Mm-hmm. That which previously they weren't able to hear, um, now yeah, they weren't able to hear and understand, now they're gonna hear <coughs> and understand. Somehow what is happening here transforms the situation of Israel. It's very well <laughs> spotted. We get two hearts, or two different ways of is acting here. We get elements of substitution, which, which just talks about things which should be ours, but which get placed on this servant. We also get ideas of atonement. To atone means to make up for, means to kind of pay the price. And so in the Old Testament, you have one of the whole sacrificial system where you, you kill animals and the blood that's poured out atones for it, and makes up for what has been done wrong. And so we see that, for example, in verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt which is saying actually his death is like one of these sacrifices that happen in the temple where a life is poured out and it makes up for it, it atones for um, what has been done. No. He's... Sorry, Agamuch. Oh, the yeah, yeah, brilliant. Um, yeah, verse 11. So, and and that's really important. When we get to kind of 10 onwards, the verses is particularly focusing on the result of all this. This figure has suffered... Sorry, has died, has taken upon himself what was asked, has has died, has been buried, verse 9, uh, putting a grave with rich men. But then we begin to talk about what happens as a result. He's going to see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, verse 10. He's dead, and yet he's going to have lots of offspring. He's going to see them, and he's going to prolong his days. Somehow this death doesn't last. Out of the anguish of the soul he'll be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, or justify many, he will put many into a right legal standing with God. And even those last verses, he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, he makes intercession, he stands between, he becomes the mediator for transgressors. If we think about who this is, this can't be Israel, because clearly We read Israel's response. This is Israel talking a lot of the time. The first half particularly is Israel talking about this person. It can't be Israel. They're looking at what's happening to an individual. They're talking about him. And this one is important. This can't be just any prophet. It can't be a figure. It can't be Jeremiah, which is what some people say about the early ones. It can't be Isaiah himself, which some people do say, but there's absolutely no evidence that anything like this happened to Isaiah. There's no historical evidence for anything really like this happening to anyone else particularly the sense of that ultimate suffering, that death, but then the death not being the end and the death transforming everything. There is no other than the obvious historical thing that this fits in. So we can't just say this is Isaiah or Jeremiah or a different prophet. But of course, it does fit with the servant figure of chapters 49 of chapters 50, where this figure is obedient to God, where he's living out in some way the the call upon Israel. But where also he is rejected and abused let's go back to the actual kind of notes the words in your notes and see how we can begin to put these things together how we can pick apart what we've got from these details it's a hugely debated question and there are actually lots of different options different ways that you can kind of piece this evidence together and so i'm just going to basically give you what i think is the most persuasive of those the first thing is we can notice a really important division between chapters 40 to 48 And chapters um, 49 to 55, which is that in 40 to 48, all of the references to the servant, perhaps with the exception of chapter 42, but I don't think that is an exception, are to the servant as Israel, which is what we saw in some of those ones, where it's explicitly talking about Israel, Israel's failure. The only one potential exception is chapter 42, which some people do read still as a messianic figure. But then when you cross into chapters 49 to 50, the reverse becomes true. There's only one reference in 49 to 50 to the servant, which is to Israel. And actually, that's unusual because that's in chapter 54. And that actually is in the plural. It's not the servant. It's the servants, with all the others in these chapters seem to refer to a specific individual. It moves from talking about Israel as a servant to in the second half, talking about an individual as a servant. And that's why chapter 42, that first servant song, is kind of the crunch point. That is the difficult one. Because it sounds like a messianic individual figure. And yet in the context, if we were to read it without knowing anything else, we would assume that it is meant to be Israel. Some scholars therefore say what we have in chapter 42 is an early mention of that individual servant who will appear in 49 to 55. It's like they're saying you're getting all the really bad news about the serving Israel. And so God gives us a glimmer of the good news that is to come or the servant who will succeed where Israel fails. Which actually does make sense, could work, and actually we read as a whole. So if now we take a step back and we think we're not pretending we're reading it for the first time, but now we're considering it as a whole, that is actually a legitimate way of reading it. So actually that is talking about a a kind of messianic figure. Other scholars, and I, I would kind of more side of this view, argue that the context of 40 to 48, the fact that every reference is to Israel as the servant, means that the servant in Isaiah 42 must also be Israel. But it's that description of what the nation is meant to do, but also what we know what they're, not meant, what they're not able to be. They're meant to be this, but actually we know they're blind, they're deaf, they are unable to be that. And that, of course, leads us to the problem. Because we're put side to side, we see what Israel is like, we see what Israel should be like, and that leads us to ask the question, well, how can that be solved? How can Israel become who they're meant to be? And that's what we then reach in the uh, second part of this uh, these chapters that's what we get in chapters 49 to 55 So once we read further on we discover that Isaiah also talks of an individual servant who will come and he will succeed where Israel failed. And so at that point we see the deeper significance of the chapters in or their words in 42. They're the vision designed for Israel. The nation failed, but this individual servant stands as Israel's representative he embodies that vision he lives it out correctly the servant can be identified as Israel this individual because he takes upon himself what Israel should be and he lives that out and that's exactly what we find in those later servant songs we found didn't we when he talks about the individual he's using the language he spoke of the chosen the uh the light to the nations he's saying that this figure is imbuing all that Israel should be he becomes what Israel should be in order that he can make Israel what they should be. He becomes a representative for them, takes upon himself what they deserve, so that they can then be free to live the right way. And that's why it's really significant that the very last reference to the servant in these chapters, in Isaiah 54, actually isn't to the servant, it's to the servants of the Lord, who will be defended by God and have received their righteousness from it. What this is showing us is that since the Messiah servant, that individual servant, has fulfilled the original mission of the Israel servant, the nation, he's dealt with the sin problem, which stopped them being able to do that. Now Israel, once again, can be individually called the servants of the Lord. They have now been empowered to live out the vision, the vocation that God has given them. You see how we kind of go on this journey, what Israel should be, what they can't be, This individual comes, he deals with the problem, and we end with the fact that Israel can now be the people they're meant to be. They can now live out the vision that God has got for them. Any questions on the servant motif in these chapters? Great. If you get your heads around that, you're basically getting to the core of Isaiah 40 to 55. That is the great flow of it. Let me talk, what should we talk about? I'm just <laughs> assessing time what can I fit in would you rather know about God and idols or about the new exodus the new exodus, the new exodus. fine let's do that do read the God and idols stuff um, on your own time As I said, these are some of the most rich theological passages in the Old Testament. They're some of the most amazing passages about who God is. And it kind of becomes this showdown between God and the idols, with God saying, I, Yahweh, I am the Lord, I'm the only true God. Everyone's going to know that. He says, I'm the one who predicts the future. He predicts 160 years in advance that Cyrus would allow the people to go back to their land. And then he basically goes, well, come on, idols, I've done that. Why don't you show us what you can do? If you're real, if you've got power, foretell the future. And so actually the fact that he foretells Cyrus's work is a really significant argument in Isaiah to show that Yahweh is the true God. He's the one who knows what's coming, who controls all of history. But you can read that in your own time. Let's talk about the new Exodus. One of the ways that Isaiah talks about this redemption, this salvation that God promises to his people is by linking it back to the Exodus from Egypt. And if you think about the Exodus from Egypt, which is told, funnily enough, in the book of Exodus, in the first five books of the Bible, it's kind of the key salvation story in the Bible, where God's people are being enslaved, taken away from all that he's promised them of being in the land with him under his rule and blessing as his people. And it becomes this wonderful uh, salvation story of God rescuing them by grace. They don't do anything, but God comes to them. God sends the plagues. God then allows substitution to take place where the Passover lamb dies instead of their firstborn sons dying. And he leads them out of slavery into freedom to be his people. It's kind of the salvation by grace story um, in the Old Testament. And therefore, it's not surprising that when Isaiah is talking about the future redemption and salvation that God is going to work, he kind of links back to the Exodus. He almost sings it in the key of the Exodus to kind of make us understand what's going to happen. And that happens primarily through alluding to different elements of the Exodus story. So even think about that first chapter in the overture where uh, it says a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. A key part of the whole Exodus narrative is that after the people are uh, led out of Egypt, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They're traveling to get to the promised land. And as you hear, this situation is quite slightly different because this is God coming and travelling rather than the people travelling. But that idea of travelling through the wilderness in the context of the Old Testament immediately makes us think of those Exodus wilderness wanderings. He's saying that something like the Exodus rescue is going to happen. Another one in chapter one, he says, he's speaking um, to God. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is part of a call of God to awake. They're calling on God. Would you act for us? Would you put on strength? And Isaiah says, think back. Remember how it was God. He was the one who parted the sea, the Red Sea. He was the one who made a way for the people of God, the redeemed, to cross over and to walk through. And he uses this as an encouragement to them to say, you can believe that God's going to do the same way for you. As they experience this great deliverance and pass through the sea, God is going to deliver you. God is going to take you in that same sort of deliverance. Or another one says, thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished and quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. There's loads of things here which are trying to make us think of the Exodus story. First of all, he talks about, again, how he was the one who parted the Red Sea. He talks about the fact that he was the one who destroyed the Egyptians. The sea came back down, flooded over the Egyptians, meaning that the chariot and the horse, the army and the warrior, were lying down they couldn't get up they were like that wick that had been extinguished and now he's saying that God's going to do a new thing he's saying don't just think about that but God's going to do a new thing but it's a comparable thing in the same way he that he delivered Egypt from uh, sorry Israel from Egypt he's going to deliver Israel from the Babylonian exile he's going to make a way in the wilderness again we're hearing wilderness wanderings rivers in the desert which might well be Trying to remind us of how God provided water from them, from rocks in the desert. And so when he's using the Exodus story like this, it's what we tend to call typology, which is to use something as a type or a pattern or a model for a later event or person. So it's saying that what happened back then kind of foreshadows, it gives us the example of how God works, of how things work out. And so we sometimes call this Isaiah's new exodus typology. It's like he's saying God is going to work a new exodus to deliver you. And actually, Isaiah is not the only one who does that. The Gospels and the New Testament do that. Paul in the letters in the New Testament, they use this key salvation moment in the Old Testament to tell the story of the salvation story of Jesus in the new. Why does he use this typology? Part of it is to encourage hope and faith. It's the idea of if God did this in the past then he can do the comparable thing for you now is look back at God's strength and God's mercy and goodness shown then and then see that he's going to be the same now but sometimes actually the significance is not just that it happened then it's going to happen now but it's actually there are going to be differences that take place one of those Isaiah 40 says and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken If you read through the story of Exodus, the revelation of the glory of the Lord is one of the key things, but it's primarily to Israel. It's God showing his glory, showing what he's like to his people. But Isaiah says at this time, the same thing is going to happen, but actually it's not just to God's people this time. Now it's being expanded out. Now it is to all people. Or another one, Isaiah 52 says, you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. This has both similarities and differences. When we hear about the God of Israel going before and being the rear guard, we're meant to think of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that led the people through the wilderness and went behind them as they crossed through the Red Sea. But then when we think about going out in haste, we think about the night of the Passover. And they're told to eat at the Passover meal standing up because they're going to have to get out quickly, basically. When the Egyptians come for them, they're going to need to make a move. They're going to need to act in haste. But God's actually saying this time... It's going to be so wonderful. You won't even have to rush. There'll be plenty of time because actually Cyrus is going to say, go back. It's not you're being chased by your enemies. You're being allowed to go back. This is the same, but is, in a sense, even better. So if you read through these chapters, listen out for all manner of different echoes to those stories and think about why is Isaiah reminding us of what God did in the Exodus as we read that through? Let me just finish by giving you an overview of the kind of structure and message of these chapters. Having looked at some of the detail, we can now do the big picture, which will, to be honest, overlap with what we've said about the servants, but it's good to do because it adds in some extra as well. Really, it all falls into two halves, 40 to 48 and 49 to 55. The first half, the big issue is the Babylonian exile. How can the people get back to their land to live with God there? But then the second part focuses on the fact that even once they're back, they're still deaf, they're still blind, they're still not living in obedience to God. There's a far bigger issue than the exile, there's a sin issue in the way as well. Do you want to ask something? Go for it, yeah.
3: How, how, Saris, how did he come about with his attitudes, you know, the way he thought? I mean, it was so different.
0: To yeah, the, that's such a good point, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in a sense, historically, I don't know, but actually, biblically, in chapters 44 and 45, which is when God is announcing the fact that Cyrus is going to come and do this stuff, basically, as with all of us, as all the kings, Cyrus' heart was in the hand of God, as the Proverbs would say. And so actually, why did he do something completely different? Because God ordained it, because God stirred his heart in that way. Um, I mean, there's some great things, for, I think, if he says it. See, so this is God talking to Cyrus. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. There's this sense of God is the one who speaks in. God actually is the one who makes something that never happened before, ever, actually happen. Which is pretty amazing. a bit is it the kings the Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And another one, it says something about it, it's like a river, which he can just make go any way. Yeah, yeah spot on so Isaiah 14, 48 he's dealing with this issue of the Babylonian exile it starts with the overture we looked at in the first section 41 to 44 the main theme is that God is supreme over all the idols in the world and so he is able to deliver Israel from their captivity and so we get all these grand statements about the God who lives the God who exists who challenges the idols But we're also introduced to that more serious issue, because as we've seen, we see the contrast between the servant as Israel who's failing, but also this servant as Israel who's called to live out this vocation given by God. So there are these two problems, Babylonian exile, but also their spiritual state as a result of sin. Then the second section in this first part focuses on the Babylonian exile chapters 44 to 47 that's where God speaks to Cyrus that's where he promises to raise him up he's going to solve the problem he's going to take the people back to their own land and also as a God of justice he says that he's going to bring judgment upon the Babylonians and upon the gods the idols of the Babylonians because they also just like Israel have failed to worship Yahweh as they should do which then leaves chapter 48 as kind of a transition chapter. He's talked a lot about Babylon, but now he goes back to talking about Israel. And frankly, he talks to them with a sense of frustration. Because even having promised all this stuff and going to do all these things, they're still not listening to him. Despite all he's done, they're still not listening. They're still not living out the life he wants. The people go back to Babylon. There's this is kind of a great song of celebration of God's redeemed people. But actually, the very last verse of that chapter comes right in there, bringing you right back down to the earth with a big thud. It's really kind of an ominous statement of there's no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. He's saying you may get back to your land. You may be singing and rejoicing. You're back in the city. You can build the temple. But he says there's no peace for the wicked. The sin problem, basically, is still there. So when we cross into the second section 49 onwards, we're waiting to see how on earth is God going to deal with this sin problem? and that's where we get the second and third servant songs this individual appears and God says that this individual is going to bring Israel back not back to the land but actually back to God they're kind of full of anticipation there's a sense of God is going to do this redemption is going to come people and God back together again these great cries of kind of celebration as God redeems and all the earth see the salvation but we're still asking well how on earth is this going to happen how can God actually do this? He can't overlook the sinfulness of his people. He's got to do something. How is he going to make it that this sin issue is dealt with? And that's when we get to the the fourth and final servant song. As the servant takes center stage, the mood completely changes. He experiences rejection, suffering, even death, but all for the sake of others. While we go astray like sheep, he's like a silent lamb led away to the slaughter. He suffers, he dies, he's buried. He's a substitute. And a sacrifice of atonement. And all of this is the will of God. Yet his death is not the end. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, he'll make many righteous, and he will intercede for transgressors. This perfect servant has taken upon himself what was deserved by the failing Israel, and now nothing will ever be the same again. And that's exactly what you find. The moment that song ends, chapter fifty-four opens with this great song of praise, and everything is transformed. The previous section was all anticipation, this is going to happen, we're waiting, we're excited. Chapter 54 is, this has happened, we are experiencing this. The thing which makes the difference between it's going to happen, we're waiting, we're excited, and this is it now, is that the servant suffers and dies, but lives again. Everything that's anticipated is enjoyed, this time of celebration, because God and his people have been restored to one another. The servants transforms everything. And there's this wonderful st- uh, kind of opening to chapter 55, the last chapter of this section, where God is inviting people to come join in this great party, this great feast. It's all completely free. Even the wicked and unrighteous are invited to return and join if they turn their hearts to God. And he says he will have compassion on them. And it finishes with this wonderful statement, those servants of the Lord now transformed by the work of the servant, once blind, once deaf, once completely failing to live out the vocation And so rejected by God, they have now, God says, received their righteousness from me. The sin issue is dealt with. They're back in the land. But far more importantly, they're back with their God, able to celebrate with him for all eternity. Incredible. Amen. I know. Incredible, (laughs) incredible stuff. And I know I've told you nothing about the New Testament, but obviously that's our story. You can just hear it all the way through. You can see how it's a a bit tricky at first. But when you unpick it, you think that's exactly what God has done in history in Christ. And we now stand in Isaiah 54. Everything has changed. Next week. um, Yes, it is next week. We will be uh, back in the Hastings Centre. Normal time. We'll be looking at that last section of um, Isaiah, chapters 56 to 66. So if you get some time this week, you might want to have a read of those before we meet then. I look forward to seeing you there.
2: I've
0: got silly questions. Oh, silly questions. Love a silly question.
3: It's very, very easy, from our standpoint, to read the suffering and boring because we know the end. Mm. Just wonder how these people received that word. Yeah,
0: no, really good point, yeah. And the fact is that by the time of Jesus, there's no expectation that the Messiah will suffer and die. At the time of Jesus, the expectation is the Messiah will come as a king who will come with violence, will destroy everyone. And it's only after, because it's so unexpected, it's so not how humans would do it. It's only after we see what Jesus does that the early church suddenly realise we now get kind of how this happens. So there were a few, well, there's Jewish sources which suggest that the suffering servant was thought of as an individual, but actually probably they are post-Jesus. Uh, and actually most of the evidence we have suggests that people thought that suffering was collectively about the nation a bit like the way they'd suffered in exile it was kind of this, yeah. this um, metaphorical way of talking about the suffering of the nation and it's only really after Jesus comes lives, dies, is raised again that it kind of falls into place and makes sense um, and in God's wisdom and God's choice that's how he chose to reveal it and um, chose to do it so yeah, a very good point so what did you- yeah, I think a lot do. And it's kind of, a, it's become a different point because some later Jewish texts, the Mishnah and stuff, do identify um, the servant there as the Messiah. They literally add the word Messiah in. But then many modern Jewish scholars would obviously do push back on that because some of modern Jewish theology is a push back against Christianity, which makes sense if you don't think Jesus is the Messiah. Um, so yeah, some of it would be that. And because the Jewish people have suffered often as a nation hugely in history, people do then say, yeah, that these passages are talking. About that.
1: Yeah. Quite often when
0: Jews become Christians nowadays it's through mm. reading those Old Testament passages yes. and then reading the life of God. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, the Holy Spirit uses those, yeah, yeah, to illuminate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you everyone. See you uh, next week.